Uh, if we haven't got a chance to meet, my name is Lance, and along with Zach and Brian, uh, service uh, pastor here, and I usually get the opportunity, at least most often, to look at Scripture together with you, and uh, so I want to invite you to your Bibles. If you have one with you, that'd be great. You could turn to the end of Romans chapter 9. Uh, perhaps you have a screen to turn on. That would be fine as well. And then there's also black hardcover Bibles right in front of you, and I would invite you to take a look at those as we consider Scripture together. Before I begin uh, reading, before we take a look at this, let me get you oriented to where we are. Uh, we make it a practice. We try to, the best that we can, walk through books of the Bible. We believe that that is a, a safe and effective, a wise way to consider Scripture. It keeps us hopefully balanced. It makes sure that we don't avoid the difficult things that God has to say. Maybe more than that, it just means that you don't get to hear my hobby horse or my, my favorite rants week after week after week. I still find a way to sneak them in there sometimes. Uh, but at least on balance, we're getting the totality of what God has to say to us one book at a time. We started teaching Romans a number of months ago. And it was said at the time, and we are, are living in it now, that this is the greatest letter that was ever penned. We call it the greatest letter ever penned because in it, Paul, moved along by the Spirit of God, forcefully and logically and passionately argues for the content of the gospel. That what we find here and how this is argued and how it's described is profound in, a pl in places and in ways that are difficult to find anywhere else. So we have learned some things. Most recently, we've been in Romans chapter 9, which many of you know carries some heavy and some difficult parts of Scripture. In fact, I believe that what Paul wants to show us is that behind every good thing in the world, especially the most good things in the world, the most good thing, which is that we would be forgiven of our sins and saved, that ultimately God is free and sovereign and in control in a way that is hard to imagine, quite frankly. And some of the questions that are asked in this chapter and some of the things we wrestled with brought us right up to the edge of what I've called the godness of God. That there are certain things that God has delivered to us for us to know and to, to build upon, and then there are some aspects of God in the way that He works that He has not made us privy to. There will be questions and things that we can imagine that we simply will not know, and so we have had to trust. We've had to trust our Father with things that we don't fully understand. And we are now coming to the end of the ninth chapter, and what we're going to look for are some markers, some things that, that reorient us or help us to say, how can I make progress? You may have gotten a little bit stuck, and people get stuck in Romans 9 often. They get stuck in theological nerddom, I think that's the phrase, or they get stuck in their heads, or they get stuck in their hearts or they get stuck saying, I don't get it, this is not how I envisioned things. There's lots of ways to get stuck there, but I believe that Paul is forging a path forward, and what we're going to look for is I read the 30th verse of Romans 9, and then turn into Romans chapter 10, and go through the fourth verse. What we're going to look for are some things that will be rails to run on, some ways for us to move forward, things that we can agree upon and say, yes, this is true. I've I've taken all the mystery of who God is and what He's doing in the world, and I am now standing on some things. What have we been taught after peeking into the wonders of Romans 9? In many ways, Romans 9, Paul like rips open the space-time continuum. And then we might walk away saying, I don't know what to do with all of that. And he's going to say, well, 
here's some things to think, and here's some things to do. So this is the 30th verse of Romans chapter 9. I'd love for you to follow along as I read. What shall we say then? Then, meaning after all of this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I wonder if you wouldn't pray with me. And I don't know how much you feel the need for prayer, but I do. Of course, I have a microphone and you don't, so that's understandable. But more than that, here's the, here's the need. Here's what I feel. We confess things concerning Scripture that are really deep and wonderful. We say that this Word is living and it's active. We say that the very God of the universe has spoken so that we could know Him. He's revealed Himself. If you're a Christian, that's your confession. That's what we say is happening as we read this. And yet, it is very tempting to go through the motions, to treat this as an idle word, to act and respond as though this were a small thing, but it's not. And I think that we need God's help to, to rightly respond, to have a congruent experience, a congruent worshiping of God based on what we say this is. So let's take a moment and pray that He helps us. God, thank You for speaking. We had no right to demand of You revelation. You have always been and You continue to be a God who delights in revealing Himself and sharing Your character and sharing Your love. And we are grateful this morning that You've not left us alone. You've not left us in the dark. You've given us light. So thank You, God, for speaking. And we ask now that You would do the great miracle of making the Word of God what we confess it to be, living and active. We don't want dead words, dead concepts, dead principles. We want life. And more than that, we don't want a mere idleness. We don't want to just go through the motions of sitting and, and even just thinking. We want active faith. We ask that this word of yours would dig in would cause a ruckus in our souls, would move us to action, deepen our faith. And we need your help in that. God, there are many things that we need your help in this morning. We need comfort. We've brought cynicism and difficulty and distraction. There are pain points that are still hurting. We have disappointments and discouragements, confusions that would have the potential to derail us. So God, bring comfort. 
grasp us. We pray for conviction too. God, none of us who among us here is not stubborn in some ways. So we have hardness of heart. We have areas of life and things that we really don't want you to speak to. We've castled ourselves off in some areas in some ways. So God, bring conviction. Speak again anew. Spirit of God, take from Jesus and give to us. Bring to our, remind, our, our minds remembrance of all things, that we would know Christ. We need you for this, and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of the things that we discuss in Romans 9 may feel foggy, fuzzy, like a storm. And as he transitions out of Romans 9, he's, 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 he's gotten to the precipice of things that can barely be understood and certainly barely even described of what God is like, how much He is other than us. And the weight of that, the heaviness of it, may make us say, well, where do we go now? And I'm grateful for some clarity, some things that we can unify around here at the end of Romans chapter 9. Reminds me of the need for clarity of simplifying things when you're in the middle of a very difficult spot when you can't quite see. And it makes me think of trying to drive in the middle of a snowstorm. I don't know if you've ever tried to drive in the middle of a snowstorm. You see, it's a weird thing. When you grow up in a place where there's a lot of snow, you don't just cancel everything when snow happens. It took me a while to learn that that's how the South deals with that. <laughs> South is, uh, just says, close the doors, batten down the hatches. But life still happens. And I remember specifically there are certain times, depending on how breezy it is, how much wind there is, especially where I grew up, it's totally flat, so snow can drift easily, and when the wind starts whipping, especially if it's snowing heavily at the time, you can get in the middle of moments when you're driving when you are completely lost. It just feels like I don't know where to turn, I can't see very clearly, I don't know what's up. I remember one specific time, I was about 15 years old, I was driving back from my cousin's house. You may be saying to yourself, well, that's your problem, you're driving illegally, you can drive very young in North Dakota. You get your kindergarten shots and a driver's license in the same meeting. That's not true, but it, almost, so you can be young. And I remember one time I was at my cousin's house, and I had to traverse across three miles of a highway. Then you get into our little town, then you got to go over the overpass, then you take a left on the gravel road in the frontage, then you take another right on a different gravel road, you get through the farmstead, and you can make it home. But in the middle of the storm, that is no small feat. There are moments on a drive like that, maybe you get past a shelter belt for a field and it is nothing but whipping snow, and there are times when you really have to focus in and you have to say to yourself, how do I make progress, where am I, and what can I do to move forward? And this may sound insane to you, but my guess is that any, anyone who has ever driven there or lived there has had a moment or two like this. I remember this evening trying to make progress, slowing down slowing down but still moving, and understanding that there were going to be points where I could not see ahead. I wasn't sure what to do, and so I had to simplify and say, how do I make sure that I can make progress and not fall in a ditch? And so while driving, I'd open my door. I'm driving with one hand, and I'm looking down, and I'm just making sure that every once in a while I'm seeing the white things go by. 
As long as I can see the white things on the road right below me, I'm fine. And my friend who's next to me over there, it's dark and it's night and it's storm, and he opens his door and he's just watching for the yellow line. And if this isn't about the most ham-fisted, crazy way to drive, but it works. Sometimes when you can't see and the storm is going crazy, you can make a little progress. You can move forward by looking for the markers and saying, I'm just going to stay between the lines. And as long as I stay between the lines, we'll make it home. And that's how we made it home. By watching the lines on the road. Sometimes the only way to make progress is to simplify, especially if you can't see clearly. So when Paul comes to the end of Romans 9, why do I tell you a story about driving in a snowstorm? When he comes to the end of Romans 9, you may feel like you've just been hit with a storm. These are weighty things. They feel emotional. These are heady things. They could feel confusing. And so when you get to a phrase like, what shall we say then? You ought to be thinking to yourself, oh good, he's opening the door. I'm just going to look for some lines. How can I line up and how can I make progress? Because I was a little confused there for a while. I couldn't see. And what I want to say to you is that in this little section from Romans 9 verse 30 to 10 verse 4, he doubles down on some markers, some things to say that if you're confused, no matter which direction we're coming from, let's focus on these things and we'll make progress. And these are the ways that we're going to think about the things we're looking for. What are we looking for to make sure we're staying between the lines, not in the ditch? First one is going to be a confession concerning righteousness. A confession is what we are after. Something that we say. That's how he opens verse 30. Something we say. Second, we need to consider a posture of our heart. I'm going to call it submission. There's a certain kind of submission that is important to God that is necessary for Israel, and they've missed it. So first, a confession is going to keep us making progress, and second, a submission, a posture of heart, and then finally, petition. A spirit of petition is going to make us stay between the lines. By petition, of course, I just mean good old-fashioned prayer, but the word prayer doesn't end in shun, so petition with confession and submission. So it'll be those three things that we're looking for, for us to make progress and stay together. In fact, I think that these three things ought to be something, no matter what you thought about Romans chapter 9, bring unity and help us to say, yeah, 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 we can get behind that. We can, we can do that. So let's start at the first one, confession. We have something to say. There is something that can be said at the end of all of it. It's a summary statement. Have you ever been in the midst of a difficult conversation or a heavy one, and then it's coming to a close and you realize, oh no, I have to transition out of this. So what do you say? So you look at them and you say something like this. So I just needed to let you know that you're a terrible person and I have a hard time living with you. Anyway, do uh, you want some macaroni and cheese? You see how the transition there can be difficult? What, what do we say now? I, I don't know. What do we say now? And Paul's going to have a what do we say now moment. He's brought a bunch of heady stuff, a bunch of heavy stuff. And here's what he says. Here's what we can say. We can confess together that there is a need for righteousness, a pursuit of righteousness, he says, that is happening behind the Gentiles and the Israelites. Well, that, it turns out, makes up all of humanity. 
Everyone needs to pursue righteousness. Our confession coming out of Romans chapter 9 is to double down on the fact that there is one thing that all human beings need more than anything else, and that is perfect righteousness. We have been taught to declare that righteousness is the greatest need of all human beings and that in Christ, He is the turning point to give us any hope toward attaining that need. If we were confused about what we need, why are we talking about how God can save and what predestination means anyway? Well, we're in this predicament because we all need righteousness. John Stott, commenting, is a wonderful commentator, commenting on this passage. He said, the thing that we learn here as we shift to the end of Romans 9 is that all human beings know that God is righteous and that they are not. That's an interesting phrase. All human beings know that God is righteous and that they are not. There are some who, pers- who suppress the knowledge of God, but nonetheless, eternity was placed in their hearts and they know right and wrong. And they know that God is righteous and they are not. And so where does that leave them, Stott says? He said the human condition is such that everyone will naturally look around for a righteousness. Everyone will look around for meaning or for purpose or something that will make them say to themselves, I'm okay. Now, we use a lot of different words. Modernity, and I think down through civilization's history, they use a lot of different words for these kind of things. It could be your purpose. It could be your identity. It could be the thing that brings you happiness. It could be what you were born for. It could be your destiny, whatever it is. But I think ultimately it's all wrapped up in this question, am I okay? Am I doing well? Am I approved? Is this the right path for me? And our confession needs to be consistently that God has a blazing, perfect standard of righteousness that we will come to terms with one day and that every human being is looking for and has a great need, whether they know it or not, for a kind of perfection that will allow us to not only meet God at the judgment throne but carry us through that judgment into eternity. So the question becomes, have you rehearsed this confession? Do you know that the Gentiles needed that righteousness as much as Israel did? Do you realize that Israel is missing the mark, but they're still looking for the same thing? The reality is is that it can be hard to know what you need. I've noticed that as I've gotten older. I, I thought I would get better at this, but it turns out that I'm still not very good at knowing what I actually need. I thought about this because our kids turned 14. We have twins. The older ones turned 14 recently. It's been funny to watch them when we ask them what they want for their birthday. They don't know what they need or want, which is a strange experience because when they were little, this was not a problem. Hey, what do you need? What do you want for your birthday? And they would have catalogs stacked up, like organized spreadsheets of birthday gift options. They've gotten a little older and they just uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I, I don't know what I need. I don't, I don't. And you know what? I resonate with that, and I think, goodness, the older that I've gotten, I don't think I can see very well what I need. And what Paul is saying is is that this idea of, of what Christ is accomplishing on our behalf, this idea of our sinfulness and God's perfection, the fact that He is other than us, He's creator and we're creature, is going to lead us to rehearse this confession. We need a righteousness more than anything else. No matter what else you have, If you go to stand before God without righteousness, it's a failure. 
it is the sin qua non. This is a Latin phrase. It just means that without which there is nothing. You have nothing. Without this, nothing. And we confess this. We confess this statement for all who would listen, all human beings. No one is opted out of this. We need righteousness. That is a summary statement concerning why salvation is a big deal anyway. You might be in the midst of arguing about how it happens or what does righteousness mean or what's God's role and what's human's responsibility and how does this function, but at the end of the day, don't miss this and forget it, that everyone needs the righteousness given to us in Christ. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say, not only do you need righteousness, but this need for righteousness leads us in one of two directions. We are either going to be stirred up to try to design a righteousness of our own, or we are going to receive a righteousness that only Christ can offer. And in many ways, all of human history is just a story of people trying to figure out a righteousness. They're trying to build themselves something that will make life meaningful. They're trying to offer to others or to God or some spiritual force or whatever they think that it is, some explanation for the way they live their life. Everyone has at the depth of their being a desire to live in a certain way, to be received, and then to offer it up and someone to say, okay, yes, okay, that was good. Well done. And you're either going to try to make that happen for yourself or you're going to give up that pursuit, realize that you're never going to attain it, and you're going to receive a righteousness from Jesus. And it turns out that it's that confession, those two things, everyone needs righteousness and it's only found in Christ, that leads Paul to his sadness concerning Israel. And that is this second idea, the second thing that we must remember, not only does everyone need righteousness and it's only found in Christ, but in order to receive this righteousness, we must humble ourselves and submit to God's good gift. Submission ultimately is the thing that Israel is missing. They refuse to receive. They refuse to receive the righteousness that comes through Christ because they're so busy building the one that they want to offer to God. So it says in numerous places throughout this passage, it says that they had zeal, they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. The end of Romans 9 and Verse 31 and 32, it says that they were pursuing a kind of righteousness. They thought that it was based on works, so they stumbled and failed. But nonetheless, they were seeking, they were busy trying to find righteousness. But because they would not submit, their posture was not one of receiving the gift, they failed. And this reminds us that in a world where everyone needs righteousness more than anything and that it can only be found in Christ, any who reject Christ are lost. They're lost. He feels for them. He hurts for them because they refuse to submit. Now, here's one place I think we can learn as well. Paul is complementary of Israel in some ways. Someone who is not submissive to God and doesn't have the righteousness of Jesus, it doesn't mean that they're bad all over. In fact, he's going to start verse 2 of chapter 10 by saying, I bear them witness. He's going to defend them. Let me tell you some good things. Let me point out some common grace in these people. The first thing that he says is, 
even though they're trying to establish their own righteousness, seeking to, to figure it out based on their own effort. Let me tell you something about Israel. They are zealous. Those people are sincere. They're passionate. He says they have a zeal for God. Now that is a point well taken. Maybe you've heard it said before that a, a ship in motion is easily turned. I think the idea there is, is that to be passionate about anything, to be doing something, to be moving somewhere is often preferable to being apathetic and doing nothing. So, passion is to be commended. And I think that our world recognizes this. You often hear people say things like this, hey, look, just whatever you do, just do it with all of your heart. Or whatever you do, as long as you do it sincerely, that it's sincerity somehow that will, that will take us through to the finish line. But Paul teaches us something here, that zeal is not enough. Mere sincerity is not enough. It might be commendable on its own because passion is a, is an, I think passion is a, a contagious thing. It shows a kind of life that in some ways is what we were made for. So though it's commendable, it is not enough. You cannot say to yourself or to anyone else, as long as you're sincere and really believe this thing, that's good enough. God does want sincerity, but sincerity by itself is not enough. There are people who are wildly going a thousand miles an hour. They are sincere, and confused, sincere and mistaken. I saw a picture of someone one time wearing a, a pasta colander on their head. I looked into this and I thought, what in the world? And this person was, uh, was evangelizing passionately. They'd given, it seems, much of their life to being what they called a pastafarian. And I just thought, boy, our world is so strange you cannot make it up. There's a weird internet religion of some kind. At least that's what I got from when I tried to figure out what was going on. And I thought to myself, if I met this fella... I might say, well, first of all, I wouldn't say fella, like I was 80 years old. Hey there, fella. But I might say, you know what? I got to admire your passion. Let me tell you what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't put a colander on my head and give so much time to what you're giving your time to. The point is, no matter how passionate he was, no matter how sincere it wasn't enough. More than that, and this is perhaps even more shocking, you see, many of us would say, yeah, I can get that. It's sincerity, but you need the truth. You need to know the real God, the true God, not the pasta one or whatever it is. But notice what he says. He says, these people, they have a zeal for God, and he doesn't put it in air quotes. You see, if I was talking about the guy with the pasta thing on his head, I would say, wow, you're very zealous for God. Capital, like lowercase g with some air quotes. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, here's the amazing thing about Israel. They were zealous for God, and he means the true God. He means the triune God, the God of all creation, the God who is the one worthy of worship. They had been taught since they were children that God, the Lord your God, is one and that he alone should be worshipped. They were zealous for the true God. They were working on his behalf and in his name. So not only is sincerity not enough, but working tirelessly of your own effort for God is not enough. You see, there's a way to do things in God's name or to, to 
honor Him by trying to impress Him with your own work that still nonetheless does not submit to Him as God. They were sincerely working for God. They'd made God their partner. They believed that they could impress Him. They thought that at the end of all things that they would be able to bring in a big building or something constructed and they would say, I want you to know this is all of our work and we're very proud of it, but we did put your name on the side of the building so you should be honored. And it's as though God would say to them, I never built that. That's not mine. I didn't build that. You see, Jesus has this same kind of thinking when He tells His disciples that many will come to Him in the last day and they'll say, we did so many cool things in your name. We cast out demons, we worked, we ran around feverishly in your name. And Jesus said, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. In other words, they had taken the facts concerning God and begun a self-righteousness plan in his name without ever submitting to him as Lord over their life. It is possible to work feverishly for God, but not know Him. That is amazing. But it is devastatingly true. And it turns out that here is the one problem. They were submissive and feverishly working for God in all of the ways that were possible except for the one way that God called them to serve Him. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I think this is a a fascinating lesson for the human condition. I read this and I think to myself, oh, I know what this feels like. Have you ever been actively obedient in every single way except the one that is most important? You might have called it procrastination or something, but the reality is, is you just did not want to do the one thing you're supposed to do. You have a very difficult phone call that will make all the difference. It's really the only important thing. It's what's required of you. It's a difficult phone call, though. So you say to yourself, you know, I should call, but who can be on the phone when the back of the fridge underneath there is so dirty? You know you're supposed to make the phone call, but you think to yourself, oh, goodness, I haven't, tr- I haven't really got my budget into shape in a long time. You're about to make the phone call, you think to yourself, the garden just looks so weedy. And from the outside, here's what it looks like. From the outside, it looks like you're just the busiest bee of all bees. But you have refused to to do the one thing that is most necessary. I had someone say this to me once and it it blew my mind. He essentially said, Laziness is often labeled busyness if you are busy with all of the things that are not required of you or not the most important. In other words, it's a kind of laziness that rejects the things that are most vital for you to do. And I remember being just cut to the quick by this and thinking, man, I do like to be busy but am I neglecting the things that God most requires of me? And that, it turns out, Paul knew very well. He says this of Israel, oh, they're zealous, they're doing all kinds of stuff for God, they just won't do the one thing that He requires, the thing they need most, and that is to submit to the gift that God has given, to admit that their righteousness is not going to be enough, 
to give up their pride and have a posture of humility. Paul knew this well because he lived this life. You see, Paul, for years and years and years, was zealous for the work of God. He says it often when he's confessing before the authorities in the book of Acts. He describes his testimony like this often. He's like, let me tell you, if you thought Pharisees were Pharisee a lot, I Phariseed more than the Pharisees Phariseed when they Pharisee. If you tried to get on Paul's schedule at a certain point, back when he was Saul, he said, Saul, could I grab some time with you later today? He'd pull out a long binder of all of his stuff and he'd say, hold on, let me check. 9 a.m., we've got to talk about the wheat threshing and what's allowed on the Sabbath. 10 a.m., we got recitation of Leviticus. we got 11 a.m., trials in the Inquisition. 12 a.m., a stoning. 2 o'clock, a burning. He said, I'm sorry, I'm just all, I'm just the busiest guy you've ever seen doing things for God. And yet, he had been disobedient in the one place that was most necessary to receive the gift of righteousness given in the person of Jesus Christ. So what will ultimately matter, much like our confession needs to be rehearsed, the thing that will keep us between the lines is to remember that of all of life, what you need most is not to be the most right about predestination. What you need most is not to be the most articulate when it comes to the way that God has worked. Though Those things are wonderful, in Scripture for our prophet, correction, rebuke, and training, and all these things. But ultimately, what we need is a posture of humility to allow God to be God, to recognize that none of our efforts will be enough, to stop our own plan. The way I used to say it to people, and I did a lot of things I felt like self-righteously, but in God's name, I carried God around like a totem. I put Him in my backpack. I lived my life. And I'd tell anybody the good things that were happening. Oh, it's because of my totem. It's God right here. And then I'd set up my own life. I'd go where I wanted to go. I'd set it up. Then I'd pull him out of my backpack. I wanted to make sure he was a part of the life. And I'd set him there so everyone could see him. But I was not willing to flip the script. God says, no, no, no. You get in the backpack. You see, you submit. This isn't about what you're building and where you're going and what you're doing. You need to be in the backpack. You need to let Christ be the one who leads. And if you're not found in Him, everything else you do will be fruitless. Even being busy, passionately busy for God. That's amazing and devastatingly true. So where does this leave Paul? What is he going to do about this? He says, here's what we confess. Everyone needs righteousness, the righteousness that only can be found in Christ. Second, he says that everyone needs to be submitting to this gift. We need to humble ourselves and set aside our own self-righteousness and receive that or else we're in a fruitless place. And where does it leave him when he thinks about the vast number of his kinsmen, the people that he knows best, and they are proud and do not have Christ? Well, It leads him to petition, to a spirit of prayer. This is instructive in verse 1 of chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer, and we don't want to miss this little and, it's massive. Many of us, in fact, I'm going to say this to myself, Lance, you have so many desires, you think so many things, but I miss the and, the connection between the things I desire and actually praying. You ever do that? If I added up all the time that you've thought about the thing that you're worrying about most in the last two weeks and then I compared it to the number of minutes and the amount of time that you've spent praying about the things that you worry about most, how do they look? 
If these were two biceps for me, I would have Arnold Schwarzenegger on one side and I would have stage four cancer patient on the other. I don't know. I, would have, I was trying to think of a weak thing and I went really dark there. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I would have like a baby arm on the other side of that. It's like a little baby arm. Because I have tons of desires. My desire and prayer. Linking them together is the place that Paul lands. To link these things together, he says, look, I have a heart for these people. They have not submitted to the righteousness of Jesus. And so I pray. It was an honest assessment of their condition. It was a consideration of their zeal, the sincerity for the true God, and their lostness that led him to pray. You see, no matter what you think about God's sovereignty, no matter where you get stuck up or you think to yourself, man, I just, I don't, that makes me nervous, prayer is a great equalizer. Prayer is the place that all of our theology comes to nest. J.I. Packer, I'm going to read a little section from the intro of a book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If you've ever thought about these things that have been talked about and wrestled through in Romans 9, and you want to make some progress in trying to help understand them, I believe that Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, is one of the most helpful books ever written on this topic. And this is how he starts out. I think it's a very Paul-like way to start it out. You notice that Paul teaches through Romans 9. He starts chapter 10 with prayer. And Packer starts with a comment on prayer in his book. He says, I don't intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in the world. So there's no need. There's no need to prove that God is sovereign in the world because I know that if you're a Christian, you believe it already. And how do I know you believe it already? Because you pray. And what is prayer but a recognition of God's sovereignty? What is prayer but asking God to do things that you cannot do and thanking Him for the things that you already have and acknowledgement that all of this is from His hand? He ends that intro by saying this, The very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive he believes in the lordship of his God. I've spent time discussing and debating and thinking through the deepest things of God with people. And many times they've gotten to the point where they're like slightly contentious and I can tell that maybe the person is kind of thinking, well, now I'm a little bit worried. I can't believe you're one of those people. I don't get this. What is reform? All this kind of stuff. I'm a little worried. And they think that there's a kind of, there's a, a breach that is happening between us. We're, we're separating in some way. And it's amazing what happens when I can say, well, let me tell you the thing we agree on most. Should we pray for the lost? Let's pray. And pray is a gr prayer is a great equalizer because it's amazing how unified we can be theologically when we pray. Why is it that you pray for God to change hearts? Why is it that you pray for someone's eyes to be opened? Why is it that you pray for circumstances to change? Why do you pray for healing over diseases? Why is it that you pray that God might send someone into that person's life? Why do you pray for provision or a job? Well, because you confess that God is sovereign over all of these things. And no matter how much I've debated with someone theologically or doctrinally, when I go to God with them in prayer, I find them confessing things that I will amen all day long. 
They would have just said to me what they believe the conception concerning salvation is, namely that the, most, the thing to emphasize is someone's stubbornness and their need to repent and to believe, but then when they pray, they pray and say, oh God, change their heart and help them to see and give them repentance. And I think to myself, amen and amen and amen. Prayer is a way forward when you're confused about what to do concerning God and the lost. And I believe that innately, the depth of our being, we know that we've been given prayer because we are not in control. We've been given prayer because God actually does listen and He does answer prayer. We've been given the gift of prayer because when we pray, God responds. Some people worry that if you read Romans 9 in a certain way that it's going to lead to a prayerless life because everything's up to God and we're just robots or whatever it is. And I would submit to you evidence to the contrary that Paul, the man who wrote the book, is driven more to prayer by his understanding of God's power and his effectiveness in the world. It's what gave him confidence that anything could change. And so... He says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. There is only one who can save. And so Paul prays. In the same way that submission was instructive to me, considering obedience and procrastination and laziness, this is instructive to me because I think about how often I am lax in praying for the lost. It's been said, which I would agree with, that especially the evangelical West has a problem with evangelism. And you might feel that. You might say to yourself, you know what, when it comes to telling someone about Jesus, I'm just nervous. I'm a little bit too shy. I don't know what to say. I'm worried about what they're going to think. I don't know how to start those conversations. You know, I'm at work and someone's like, did you get the Excel spreadsheets done? Did the numbers line up? I mean, what am I supposed to say? Yes, but you know what numbers really matter? Three nails on a cross. You know, I mean, like you don't, you see what I mean? You don't know how to start these convos. You don't know what to say. And I would, I would agree that for many of us, that's a hard place to get to. But I wonder if the difficulty there, we're starting too far down the, ro- down the road of problem. The reality is, is that fear of man is keeping us from proclaiming Jesus openly to the people that we meet. My guess is that deeper than that, deeper than that, a misunderstanding or a rejection of the fear of God is keeping us from praying for the lost on our knees. There have been so many times in my life when I bump into people that I care for, I have a desire for them, I want their joy, I want their spiritual pursuit to find a resting place, I'd love for them to be forgiven or free of whatever addiction they're in the midst of. I bump into people like that and every few months I think, oh, it's serendipitous, amazing, they're here and I think about them but I do not pray. I simply do not pray for them. I wonder what kind of fruit might be possible if through the rest of 2022 as a church we just committed to say, you know what, I'm just going to think about the people that I have a desire for. I want their good. I want their eternal good in Christ. I'm just going to actually pray for them. 
I don't know where you keep if you have a little list of prayer or cards or I was going to say a diary. It's a, jur- a journal. How do you call it? But put down a name or two. Do you believe God can save? And the best answer to that is, well, He saved me. Are you as lost a cause as, uh, as you... Have you confessed that you're as lost a cause as you really are? So Paul says, let me tell you about the godness of God. It's majestic. It's magical. There are things we don't know. There's mystery here. And then he turns and he says, what should we say? Well, let's confess the need for righteousness. Let's submit to Christ because He alone is the place to do it. And then shouldn't we pray? Shouldn't we ask God to meet us in our prayers? Shouldn't we ask Him to open eyes? And I just don't know if we do. In fact, I can even think of training for evangelism. How often it goes straight to methods or modes or bullhorns or whatever it is that you want training in. And oftentimes skips over. How about just for six months consistently pray for the lost? Start there. This is an encouragement to me. Maybe an exhortation to us as a church to remember the big picture. What is this about? Ultimately, is this about being right concerning doctrine? Well, I want to be right concerning doctrine. Ultimately, is this about convincing people concerning Romans 9? Well, I hope people are convinced. I don't want to be unconvincing. And at the end of all of it, I think that what the Apostle Paul would say, yeah, those things are fine, but you know what? If you're, let's, get a, let's get some clarity here. Let's open the doors and find the lines. Hear the lines. There are people whose souls are at risk of absorbing the full wrath of God as punishment for their sins and being lost forever. There are people who are in darkness and do not have light. There are people who have been separated from their Creator. And we have no hope if God cannot save So Paul gives us a pattern here. It's like his version of the Lord's Prayer. He prays to God what? What does he pray? That they may be saved. So this is an invitation to me. No matter what you think is happening behind the scenes, run to him and say, God, save. Save. It's an audacious prayer. Maybe I'll just say it like this. Whatever your construction concerning salvation, in theological terms, they call it your soteriology. No matter your soteriology, if it does not lead you to a desire and passion to pray for the lost, go back and redo the math. That's what Paul seems to be saying. So, let's pray. Let's joyfully, passionately, with zeal, pray.